Right, thanks a lot for um, having me again. I was just also reflecting on when I was here the next, uh, the last time, and it's been a while. It was the 4th of December, YouTube says. <laughs> you can go back and have a look. And I just actually started um, giving talks uh, on uh, theme. Usually I try to take up a theme and, you know, have the talks around a certain topic. And the broad topic that I chose um, last time um, was um, relationships. And we talked about friendship last time. And this time I actually wanted to talk about trust, about faith, about this beautiful word of Sada. But then life happened <laughs> and I uh, was away for four months in Switzerland and uh, I had the opportunity and the privilege to um, uh, be with my mom in the process of uh, dying and also to be with my family in that uh, very important time. And I just felt it would be um, really appropriate and it would be really good to also, um, you know, share some of those lessons that um, I could, or things that I could learn during um, this period of time. So it will still be about trust, it will still be about faith, but um, quite differently from what I was anticipating. And very often I often, um, you know, think about what I'm going to talk about quite a bit and prepare quite a bit as well. And this time I just have quite a bit of photos, <laughs> uh, m much less so than actual, you know, writings or ideas. So we'll just kind of see what, what comes out. Um, I'm also aware that, you know, death and dying is one of those topics that um, can be difficult or can be a bit tender for people as well. So I'm just going to, you know, share um, how the experience was for me. And I am aware that everyone has their own process they go through when um, they are uh, together with someone who is dying or when they have someone who passed away recently. And for some people, you know, these things might be more, more fresh or more difficult. So it's really important that we are very, very gentle with these kind of topics. And I'm not the kind of person to confront people. <laughs> and that's also not what I'm going to do today. But I also feel it's important that this is a topic that is talked about, that is thought about, that is contemplated about, because it's something that um, is going to happen to all of us sooner or later, first to the people around us and then uh, to ourselves as well. So it's, it's good to find the middle ground there. And I also trust and have faith in the Dhamma and in the process that um, we will be able to have a look at this in a way today where everyone can take it in and, um, you know, get some lessons uh, from what has happened to them in the past or what will happen to you in the future as well. Uh, I'm, aw I'm aware from, you know, being in Australia that we sometimes also um, have like disclaimers in terms of saying that there will be photos of people who have passed away, especially of, uh, of my mom and, and myself. Um, and um, I don't know the whole thing around that. Um, for the First Nations people, so maybe someone can explain that to me later. But it's it's very good to be respectful about these things, and um, to yeah, as I said before, to go gently. Okay, so let's have a look. Oops, that's <laughs> first slide coming here exactly. So learning from living and dying. That's kind of uh, the the ti the title that um, came to me. 
So, and I would also like to um, dedicate this talk to my mom, who um, passed away a little bit more than two months ago now. Um, it's also interesting that the date today is exactly a month away from the memorial service that we had in Switzerland. So it was on the 28th of April where we um, farewelled my mom together in Switzerland. And, you know, usually when uh, we join monastic life, um, then we're often um, encouraged that we let go of the world and that we, you know, really um, give ourselves to the, to the spiritual path. And that is um, very important. But I also think that we shouldn't throw out certain things that are important. And for me, that was the connection to my family. And that was the connection to my mom. I had to let go of that world in Switzerland just through the distance that is between um, uh, Australia and Switzerland. I'm half a world away. And, um, but still, I feel there was a relationship that we could maintain. And I was very, very happy that I could go back home every now and then. And there is a few pictures from the two of us in the um, recent years when I was able to go and see her. And one experience that, of course, I think more, a lot of you can um, connect to as well is the experience of when COVID came around and when traveling wasn't uh, possible anymore. So you had a certain distance from the people, even in your own country, um, let alone from the people when you are from other countries that live somewhere else and you couldn't really go and uh, see them. Um, this is the last time that I was able to um, see my mom before I went this time. And that was actually also after COVID and even realizing after those three years of not being together, there was quite a huge difference there. But of course, we live in the age of, um, you know, computers and as you can see, Skype there. So that was actually my mom who kind of encouraged me to um, have a Skype account and then later down the track also to have a WhatsApp account and to be in contact with her um, that way. In the past, I, you know, I didn't even have a phone or something, so I managed to get the WhatsApp on a, on a tablet and to be in contact with her that way. And that's actually a picture, you know, sometimes in Skype, you can just take a, a screenshot and that's one of the screenshots that, that she took. And it's quite interesting as well that for her age, she was able to kind of do these things. And one funny incident is, is, is as well, you know, of course, we monastics, we live together and uh, Bhante Mudito, who lives with me over in, in Melbourne, uh, over in Newbury, um, we also saw like someone sending me hearts <laughs> through, through WhatsApp. So he got a bit worried <laughs> what's going on there. And I was telling him, don't worry about it. It's my mom. And he said, okay, that's fine then. <laughs> right, but that communication that became um, less and less possible. So in the past, I, as I said, Skype and then WhatsApp and then, you know, just calling my mom was something which became less and less possible because she didn't quite understand how these things function anymore. And um, that was actually quite a difficult time to not be able to communicate. And one of those things that recently made me actually quite tender, that's always when you realize, oh, these things are still kind of fresh in your mind, is when Ajani Sarana was talking to me, um, I think it was actually yesterday, and was reminding me of some of those conversations we had um, before I was able to go and see my mom. And there wasn't so much, um, 
you know, content that we could exchange. And often those, those uh, phone calls were maybe just, you know, half a minute or a minute or something. But one of the things that she kept saying is, um, blieb bei mir, which in Swiss German basically means stay with me. And I was trying to, um, you know, tell her, yes, I will try and do that as well as I can in spirit to stay with you. And what that really kind of triggered in me is this, this wish that I wanted to make sure that she's not left alone, that she doesn't feel alone in this time, uh, in this crucial time of uh, her life. So I did what I could during the time when I was here uh, in Australia. And then, you know, it's always like, oh, you get the people who visit her and you call them or you WhatsApp them and then you're able to communicate with your mom in, in a, a bit more, you know, vivid way. But um, it became increasing, increasingly more difficult. And I also had um, contact with the carers of my mom. And when I was calling them around December, I was already um, certain that usually, you know, I go to Switzerland for about four or five weeks. And I was uh, prepared to do that as well. And um, I was just asking uh, one of the carers that is around her for, all the, uh, for many, many years now, you know, um, how, what, what do you feel? How is the situation? And that's the first time when she kind of went and had a look at her, came out of the room again and said, I think it's good if you come. And I was very, very grateful um, that I could leave and that I also had the support. Uh, I mean, as a monastic, you know, we don't have the ways and means to do these things. So um, there was a kind supporter here, and it was, you know, during the peak season, just after Christmas, to, uh, to travel to Europe. So um, it, wasn't, it wasn't so easy to do that. And then also when I actually came to Switzerland, and um, I stayed for those four or five weeks, and then carried on staying because um, um, I, I saw and I felt um, there is a bit more time needed. Um, that the people would say, oh, that's very interesting. And that's, um, how does that actually work? That your employer allows you <laughs> to stay here in Switzerland for such a long time. <laughs> so I was reflecting on that and was saying, well, you know, I mean, my employer is really a very, 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 very nice guy. But he died more than 2,500 years ago. <laughs> and I don't really have, um, you know, his permission in that sense. But I know I would have his permission. And I do have kind of a work contract. But the work contract I have is the contract of the Dhamma and is the contract of the Vinaya. And that's the things that I, as a monastic, should be, you know, that I signed my life away, so to speak, and that I should be keeping towards. And that contract I could still keep very well during the time when I was in Switzerland. But of course, it's not so easy as well being in a country who doesn't know so much about Buddhism. Oh, okay, that's right. That's why I put the picture in there so we don't have the slides up there for too long. That's all good. So one of the interesting things that happened, I mean, first of all, my, my friend who lives in a really kind of small apartment, I always called it like a hotel room. Because you come in, there's a bathroom, there's a tiny little corridor, there's a little kitchen, and then there is one space. It's like a studio. And when I called him and explained the, the situation, I mean, he was already aware of it. He said, oh, yeah, of course, no problem, you know, come and stay with me in this tiny little, little apartment. And um, 
Um, I was very touched by that, and I actually did stay with him in the beginning, but I was aware that, you know, you can't stay with someone for a long, long, long period of time, especially in such a small and confined space. So um, what we found out, and what I already knew, is that there is a Christian monastery right next door to the place where my mom was. My mom was in a nursing home. So that's a Capuchin monastery um, uh, from, you know, the 15... 1500, 1500 and a half something. That's the 16th century, I think you say. Um, I always get that one wrong. Anyway, like an old, nice building. But um, what happened there is with those monks, they now don't have that many monks anymore. They have about 12 monks. So they started to rent out a part of the building. And um, they had studios in that building. So I was actually able to go and stay in one of those studios um, in that Christian monastery. But when I came to the monastery, um, they also showed me around. And one of the rooms they showed me there is their church. And this is the back part of the church. This is the choir. This is the place where the monks go to meditate and where the monks go to pray. And um, even now, when I asked my, my monk friend over in Switzerland to send those pictures through, it, it brought really a lot of joy and a lot of happiness to my mind. Uh, because even when I saw that room and when I felt that room when I came there um, the first time, I really felt at home. It was a different religion, of course. I'm not a Christian monk. <laughs> but I really, really felt there is some strong connection and that's also the place where I would go in the mornings. They actually have a meditation there uh, before they have the prayer. And then they also have a meditation in the evening and, uh, and the prayer in the evening as well. And so I went for that meditation. And then they asked me the first time, oh, okay, so you're coming for the meditation. And I guess now you're going back to your room. You know, we're going to do our prayer now. And uh, I felt, no, I will stay for the prayer. And I will just, um, you know, um, try to do what I can and just feel um, how I can resonate with what you are doing in your religion. And I found it very interesting and very touching how much I could actually connect to some of those things that they were praying, that they were doing in their day-to-day -day lives, and to actually have respect for what they do as well. So I actually even had my little, little spot there in their church where I would usually sit. And then over time, because I stayed there for four months, I actually had a little spot in the monastery and in their community as well. So um, Brother George, who you can see here, he's the superior of the monastery there. And he's actually also the person I called back then when I was trying to find a place to stay. Um, when he spoke at the memorial service of my mom, he actually referred to me as Brother Bodhi. <laughs> they call themselves brothers as well. So I uh, just reflected this morning that I should actually be calling him Venerable George as well <laughs> in return. So it's a really beautiful um, uh, friendship that has developed between the two of us and, of course, also with the whole community. And I think that was only possible because we had trust, because we um, trusted each other, because we had respect for each other and because we took it very slowly. <laughs> and of course, there will be disagreements in terms of the teachings. 
But um, we had, you know, some discussions which were lively and interesting. But it was never, you know, a fight in terms of trying to, you know, say, oh, my religion is right and your one is wrong or whatever, the, or the other way around. Uh, and that was really touching what has actually developed over that time. So um, this is the little little room. <laughs> That's actually me, you see me there, pointing out how big my kuti is <laughs> compared to this huge room. So the cells they used to have were actually smaller as well. And they, I think they took the wall out in between and they put two cells together. And then you also have quite a nice room. And then you also have a, a little bathroom um, and a toilet next to there in your room. So I had all I needed. As a Buddhist monastic, you have, you know, there are certain requisites, and one of them is to have a roof over your head. And I didn't just have a roof over my head, I actually really had a space where I could retire. And I also had a space, which I showed you before, where I could meditate and where I could pray. Of course, I meditated in my room as well. But as I said before, in that room, there was such a nice energy that I really liked to sit there uh, also. Now, on the right side of this picture, on the table there, you see a piece of paper. And I didn't realize how important uh, that piece of paper was uh, in my whole lifetime before I actually had to sign it. So it's my um, uh, contract for the, like my rental contract. So I signed it on the 3rd of January, as you can see, when I got there. And when I signed it, I realized that that was actually the first rental contract I ever signed in my life <laughs> as a Buddhist monastic. Because, um, you know, of course, first I lived with my parents and then I always had a room there as well. I lived in two um, boarding schools as well and, uh, for eight years altogether. And then afterwards I moved in to a flat with four of my friends. And, you know, one of my friends, the one that I stayed with in the beginning, he, he was actually the owner of, or he was on the contract. So I would just, you know, pay my rent or pay a bit of money to him to pay the rent. So, see, <laughs> I've never, never thought that this was happened to me as a Buddhist monk. Now, also, I was sending this around so you can actually see um, how close this is. So I was living up there in the attic. And uh, my mom was living really right next door. So the whole garden of the monastery was actually accessible for the people from that nursing home. They had a batch. And with that batch, they could actually get into the garden. Uh, and um, that uh, was beautiful. So I could actually go through the garden and go to my mom and then come back. Another thing which also showed me how much trust um, was built with the people in the, that nursing home over the years is when I got there that they said, oh, just take the key of your mom, just take the batch of your mom, and you can go in and out of this place um, as you wish. You know, if you come at nighttime, please, you know, tell the night nurse that there is no surprises, that there's suddenly kind of a, a Buddhist monk sitting in your mom's room and they get really spooked or whatever, because with these ropes, sometimes it might look a bit like a ghost when it's, when it's, um, when it's dark. <laughs> But that was just so, so touching and so beautiful as well. Uh, actually, that picture there was, of course, taken out from the internet somewhere. That's how it looked like, because it was winter. And I usually don't travel in winter. So here you can see the view from the room where I stayed at, uh, right uh, across the garden to, um, to the nursing home. So really, you know, one or two minutes away. 
And then here, <laughs> one of the pictures that I sent around and people were commenting that I look, uh, look happy, but I also look fat. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. I didn't put on weight while I was in Switzerland, I think, but I am very well equipped uh, through living over in Melbourne and I have the right clothes, so I am wearing a jacket underneath my robe, <laughs> which makes me look a bit more uh, chubby than I actually am. And there is, of course, also a monastery in Switzerland. It's called Kandersteg, uh, in sorry. It's called Dhammapala. And uh, they've already helped me as well when my father was dying 10 years ago. And uh, it's become a bit of a tradition, so to speak, <laughs> when one of my parents dies, that I go to Switzerland for four months and that I stay at that monastery as well. But it's up in the hills. It's about a thousand meters above sea level. And uh, it's just not practical to, you know, drive with the train two and a half hours and maybe when you change the train, even three hours to go back and forth. So I wanted to be close to my mom. And that's why the Christian monastery was beautiful. So that's the monastery there. Dhammapala. Then, of course, I'm part of a meditation group in Switzerland as well, uh, ever since I was um, quite young. And they have a house on Mount Rigi as well. They actually build a little kuti, as you can see here behind the house. Um, but again, it's the same thing there. You have to go up the mountain and down the mountain. And also, we even see it here in Melbourne to organize people to bring dana uh, is sometimes not such an easy task. And imagine people having to go up the hill <laughs> and then come down again with, with, uh, uh, with the, what is it, like with the gondola or something. So um, it was much, much more easier to organize all that in Lucerne, where I'm from. This is actually the view from, uh, from that uh, place. And this is myself over there. Um, what will become more significant later down the track is this little pack that you can see on the cushion there. That's a rope pack. And uh, for people who have been to uh, Buddhist funerals, they uh, might have seen that we offer a piece of cloth um, uh, to the deceased person. And then the deceased person, so to speak, offers it to uh, the monastic community. So Kandersteg helped me to get one of those packs to offer at my mom's funeral uh, or my mom's uh, uh, memorial service. And I offered it to Mandrigi afterwards um, for whoever comes past of the monastics there. Right, so now, uh, exactly, I said a roof over the head, um, clothing, medicine, and then the third thing that uh, a Buddhist monk needs is food. How do you organize that? You know, if you're going for a week or two or even a month, then it's fairly easy to organize these kind of things. But if you're staying for a longer period of time, like four months altogether, how is this all going to work? And that was also quite nice to see how this panned out. Um, uh, also with some of the like neighbors or friends of my mom who have no connection to Buddhism, they had a connection through my mom and through me over time, and they started to invite me you know, to go back to their place and, and have a meal, a uh, house dana, so to speak. Others gave me vouchers, and you can actually see there in my bowl, there is um, some, some kind of bags in there from one of those shops in Switzerland, which is called Aspar. And that, uh, like the bar is like the English bar, and as means food. It's like a food bar, but Aspar also means edible. So it's, it's a, it's a wordplay. And it's actually quite a nice organization, because what they do is they sell food for a reduced price, from bakeries who would throw away that food. 
so they make sure there is no um, no food waste. And their slogan is is um, like fresh from yesterday, <laughs> not fresh from today. So that's one of the places I could go. I also went on arms round, but as I was uh, telling some Sri Lankans up at the monastery, you know, in Sri Lanka, if you do that, or if you do that in Southeast Asia, people know exactly what what's going on, and they actually offer you something. In Switzerland, because we don't really ask, because we don't go like, <laughs> or whatever, I was telling people it's a, it's a little bit like going on a walk with your dog. People are friendly, so I took my bowl for a walk, you know. <laughs> people were friendly, and they say hi, and say, oh, the, aren't you cold in these clothes? And you say, no, no, it's okay, I have things underneath, or I just had a hot shower before I went for the walk. But they don't really know how this thing works. So I never actually got food in my bowl um, during that time in um, Lucerne. But um, the picture you can see there in the snow, again, that's in Kandersteg, and they have a tradition which is established there that they go on arms round every Wednesday. And they have four families, and you go from house to house, and you actually get some food that you bring back to the monastery afterwards. And that was my first experience as a Swiss Buddhist monk to go and see people from my own culture, from my own background, and to be able, you know, to give them a blessing, to talk to them in their native language, uh, but also to, um, you know, have the ritual of actually going and receiving alms. So that was beautiful. And then this, this um, plate of food that you can see down there um, that has been established for quite a while already. So when I would go to Switzerland, I would often eat at the nursing home where my mom lived. But of course, we would have the meals together in the past, which wasn't uh, really possible in the same way anymore. So um, my mom uh, donated a bit of money and then also donors in Switzerland, and then which I was really kind of heartened as well. There were people here in Australia. There was a family in Canada. There was someone in Paris even who offered um, funds so that I could go and eat um, at the nursing home. One thing which really touched me as well is one of the uh, people who worked there. I mean, of course, they would see me have the meal down there. And she asked me, you know, do you get the meal for free? Because she realized I'm coming to see my mom, you know, on a regular basis for such a long time. And I said, no, no, no. But, you know, I have support and I have, I have donors who, who pay for this. And then she said, because they get uh, vouchers, like for teas and coffee, because they work there. And she wanted to offer those vouchers to me. That, that was really, really touching. But I explained to her that, you know, when I'm on, on my mom's floor, and then they usually offer me drinks anyway. And uh, I'm not such a big coffee person anyway. But it's something that was just so beautiful. And then also to just um, see how Dana works. Um, that's what this... Uh, flower is about. It's not an edible flower, as far as I know, and I didn't eat the flower either. But when I was on my way uh, to see my mom one day, um, I wouldn't always take the bus because, you know, the, there was no connection, or it was actually quite in a nice place in Lucerne where you can walk quite easily. So I was walking up the hill, and as I was walking up the hill, I see these kids kind of just looking around the corner and then shuffling away and looking around the corner again. And so once I came around the corner, I saw they had a little table set up and they had a table with flowers and some, you know, um, things that they have created themselves. And they had a little stall and they wanted to sell something. And, um, you know, I didn't feel like explaining at length what's all going on here, but I just kind of said, oh, look, I'm a Buddhist monk and I don't actually have money um, to buy anything. And I wanted to, to carry on walking. But before I could even carry on walking, 
um, there was a boy and a girl, the, the little girl took one of the flowers <laughs> and, and, and handed it over to me and said, this one is for free. <laughs> and so I took it and, uh, and thanked her uh, a lot and also explained to her that I'm actually going to see my mom and that I'm going to bring this flower to my mom. And because that really moved me, that's also why I took a picture and that's why I can show you now. And uh, I walk about 50, meet, 50 meters or something, and someone else comes and says, oh, I was just in Burma or wherever it was, and oh, there were all monks and nuns you know, on the road. And it reminds me exactly of that. So uh, these kind of coincidences um, that were um, very, very nice for me. Okay. Then one other thing that happened for me that first I felt was quite a bit of work, but um, we had a lot of photos from our family. And uh, of what we've done, because I helped clear the apartment of my dad, I helped clear the apartment of my mom before she moved to the nursing home, you always end up with a few boxes. And one of those, or a couple of those boxes, I must actually say, who were in the cellar of one of my, uh, of my mom's friend, were the boxes with all the photos. And I always wanted to, you know, sort through them. And every time I went, I would sort through them to a certain degree. Um, but this time I had a bit more time to actually also digitalize those photos. And sometimes it was quite an arduous work because, you know, if you want to upload them on an on a album so you can share it with your family and you want to also make sure they have the right name and they have the right date so they're in the right order. So... Um, it, it wasn't always easy, but what really helped is that my mom um, did write on the photos, especially in the beginning of her life, because before uh, all the children were born, where the picture was taken and what time it was of the year. But what I didn't realize is how important that process actually was from what was to come later down the track. And uh, again, I know this is quite personal, uh, what I'm going to be sharing now, but I, it's pictures of me, so... I, I don't mind, that's fine. It's pictures of my mom, so I can't really ask her anymore because she has passed already. But I'm sure that she will, would be happy, especially um, knowing what the intention of me is, uh, why I'm sharing all these uh, photos with you. I'm, uh, you, you, know, you. You don't really know my mom. <laughs> Some of you don't really know me or know me to a certain extent. But what I want to convey is more of a kind of an emotional um, connection that you will um, kind of feel through those pictures. So that's uh, my mom and myself uh, after I was just born and then uh, when I was um, celebrating my first birthday. How many of you? We're three all together, yes. But um, that's also one thing. I, I can only share what comes from me personally and I want to respect that as well, that, you know, my the rest of my family members might maybe not feel so comfortable to, to share um, as much as I'm, I'm sharing here. Um, Trichud was just saying, why, why didn't you come on Mother's Day? That would, be, have, would have been really appropriate, but I was just so busy at that time coming back from, from Canberra, and uh, I didn't actually have time to prepare all this until about a week ago or so. But the connection we have to our mothers is actually very, very strong. I know also this is something, sometimes some, something some of us might not have the best kind of connections to our parents, but what our parents do for us is just extraordinary. And also the Buddha says that it is so important to be grateful for that. 
and um, to give back as much as we can. And that's why I was also so happy that I could actually join my mom. So that's uh, a few more pictures from growing up and becoming a bit more, um, a bit older. But then also I realized it wasn't just childhood. When I was going through the pictures, I realized that my mom was there in my life so many times and at crucial times in my life as well. So this uh, New Zealand thing here is I was an exchange student in uh, New Zealand for one year and she actually came to visit me over there. And the other one is when I was at the teacher training college, and that's when I was finishing. Maybe just the one story that stays with me. It's, it's almost like a memorial for my mom's second part here, but I haven't actually shared that story. When we were traveling in New Zealand uh, in 2000, I was just 18, so I couldn't actually drive. So we got a rental car and we went around the South Island, and um, she was driving. And of course, when you're driving in Australia or in New Zealand, you drive on the other side of the road. And so she felt a bit kind of uncomfortable with this whole thing. And we were driving one, one, uh, one time and it was already a bit nighttime and, you know, dark. And there was um, a police car stopping people to make sure they haven't drunk any alcohol. <laughs> so, you know, she's already a bit of a worry character anyway. So <laughs> she sees the police car and she's like, OK, I have to indicate and to stop. And as you will know, the indicator and um, the uh, uh, screen wiper, they're actually exactly the other way around as well. So she goes and wipes her screen instead of putting it. So first thing, okay, she, she gets there, rolls down the window. And police officer brings out the gadget and says, okay, um, please talk into this thing. And in Switzerland, she is used to blow into something and not to talk into something. So instead of talking, she started blowing into the thing. So the police officer explained to her, no, 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 no. You have to say something. Just count. So I explained, you know, translating her English not being the best. So she starts to, um, to count and she goes like, one, three, instead of three, five. <laughs> and that was just one of those incidences. We got to the hotel where we were spending the night um, that day, and we were recalling that, and we were laughing so hard that actually the person who was serving up came up to us and said, you guys are okay, <laughs> because we had trouble even, even breathing from, from laughing so much. So that is actually one nice story. And that reminds me of how my mom used to be when she um, was um, happy. Um, the other time where she was there for me as well, this is my first school day when I was a um, teacher. And uh, this is my mom helping me um, preparing that first school day. Uh, then she was also there when I joined the monastic community in Ayakema's monastery in Germany. So you can see her there in the background. And I lived at Meta Vihara in Germany. Ayakema, of course, wasn't there anymore. She died in 1997. But uh, I stayed with the community there on eight precepts for almost two years. So she was there as well to visit me there. And then, of course, she came to Australia as well. So the people in Perth, if they will be watching this on some stage, they will um, maybe actually remember her from being there. That's in 2011. So we went on a little trip down south. And the ordination ceremony of becoming a novice was actually Vesak. So it's 12, 13 years ago when uh, we celebrated Vesak, and I'll be going to WA and we will be celebrating Vesak there again on the first weekend. So that also reminds me of uh, the time when she came. 
and that is the time when I ordained together with Bhante Mudita, that, uh, that most of you will know as well. And one of the ceremonies we do is the forgiveness ceremony. So we actually go, we bow to our parents, we ask for forgiveness before we go forth. And um, you can see it's a bit emotional. And that's what you can uh, see here. What is also significant for me, and what you will see why, is the little packet that she has on her lap there. This is the first set of robes that she gave me before I ordained. Now there is a few other pictures of a life before I was actually around. And I also realized how important that was for me, to see the pictures of my mom when she was a child. Children are so innocent. Or also, when um, she was a youth, maybe, you know, 20 years old or something like that. It's one of those pictures. Or also when she came from Czech Republic, she was 23 years old, and she came over to Lucerne. So that's one of the first pictures you will, the bridge there for the people who've been in Lucerne. And the other one is the time that she spent with my dad. My dad was uh, in Switzerland in the beginning. My dad was a doctor and he had the opportunity to travel the world uh, to go and see and have different conferences. So that's a picture of her going to um, um, Chicago. And it kind of shows, you know, this playfulness and this youthfulness. And now again, why am I showing you all these pictures? I'm showing you these pictures to get a bit of a feeling of the connection that I had to my mom. And that was also important to me because when you remember the whole life a person had, then you can put that into context when you see them at the end of their life. Sometimes when we are with people at the end of their life, um, it can become um, a bit difficult because we just focus on that part and it really kind of puts that into context. And that actually allowed me, oh, okay, um, but um, I'm, I'm getting ahead. That actually allowed me to kind of infuse um, the time I had with my mom. Um, so it's not just her and the time that she had before I was around, but it was also her connection that she had to her own father and that she had to her own mother. And, you know, the joy and the happiness that you can see in photos. And what is wonderful with photo albums is as well that we usually just take pictures of joyous um, opportunities of joyous um, occasions and that's what we actually should be remembering when we get into a time which might be a bit difficult and that's another one there of course with the famous Matterhorn in the background and uh, my parents came to Switzerland and weren't able to go back to the Czech Republic because they fled at that time because uh, it was around uh, the Prague Spring and so they couldn't actually go back. So the parents had to come and visit them in Switzerland. And I would see in the albums again and again that they would come and visit. And back then they wouldn't actually be allowed to come together because the government was afraid that if both of the parents came, that they would stay on in Switzerland and that they would lose uh, uh, more people. So it wasn't possible before 1998 when the, uh, when, when the, when the wall fell and when the borders opened. Um, with the mom of my mom, she actually died in 1982, so I never actually met her myself. Okay, so that is the context. And now with all that, with all those memories, with all those feelings that these pictures evoked in me and that these pictures also hopefully invoked in you, I could see a different side of my mom. Because when I was with my mom, when it was the last um, stage of her life. Of course, her body would be different 
than the body that we are used to for such a long period of time. But what happened to me is that I always saw these emotions that I tried to evoke shining through this old body, through this sick body. And I think that was something which was really, really important to carry me through that time. So that was possible for me to even, you know, have her when she was sick and dying, to see a lot of people commented on her thick eyebrows. <laughs> it's something, it's one of those things which have stayed with her over life, or what stays with us over her whole life is also our voice, which doesn't change so much. Now, I had uh, the opportunity and the luck to be able to have what I call the gradual training. So sometimes when someone dies very unexpectedly or when we are not prepared, then it can be quite confronting, then it can be quite shocking. So I um, collected those quotes and I made some WhatsApp stickers in the past and I've put some that are relevant to this topic in here. And that's actually what Ajahn Brahm teaches us again and again and again. That's what Buddhism teaches us and again and again and again. That when we are sick, that we actually should tell our doctor it's okay to be sick. Sickness is part of life. So that we're not so shocked that we actually know it's coming at some time. Also with life, that it goes up and down, that we have happy times, that we have not so happy times. It's path, uh, par for the course. And then also that when we are exposed to death, that we know it's going to happen to us as well. It's not always easy to um, kind of think about that or let that, um, you know, seep into our hearts. But it is important to be reminded. And when that is the case, then we can actually um, deal and handle these things when they arise in, in a different way. Then we can actually say, if things go wrong in that sense, but actually go right, that we expected them that way. And that was with my mom. You know, she took me on this journey of two and a half months to um, follow step by step and say goodbye gradually to see that communication um, gets lost, to see that there is less and less um, meals. For example, also the last meal that we had together um, towards the end, most of the things she couldn't eat anymore, but fruit salad was one of those things. <laughs> and that's also, for me, it's kind of like a trigger now when I was in the aircraft and uh, I had some fruit salad. They usually have those small kind of bowls and I had some fruit salad this morning. It kind of triggers something. But what is nice for me, it doesn't trigger a trauma. It actually just triggers a feeling to get in touch with what has happened to me and to get in touch with um, being grateful that I could spend um, this last, last time with my mom, that I could be there with my mom for that last meal, for the last communications, for the last this, for the last that. Sometimes we don't realize how precious these last moments are. And even though sometimes it might be difficult, towards the end, my mom um, was sometimes becoming a bit loud, actually. <laughs> and I would walk into the nursing home and I could hear her through the window. <laughs> and um, it took a while to kind of adjust um, to um, her being like that and to realizing that she was just trying to communicate in that way uh, uh, and to, you know, um, get some attention <laughs> and to have someone be with her. And when that actually stopped, 
I realized that I was missing it, even though it was hard in the initial stages. Um, okay, so that was that. Then, of course, uh, the moment came when um, I didn't have just all those preparations, but where I actually had to let go and where she actually passed away. And that was on the 25th of, uh, of March, um, two o'clock in the morning. And because I was prepared, because I had all these teachings, I was able to, to go there, um, give a last chanting for her, and to actually stay with the body for the rest of the day um, until um, the undertakers came and we, uh, we, we put the body to rest in the coffin. And I was amazed how peaceful that actually was and how the relationship that I have built over a whole lifetime and also the relationship that I have built over those last two and a half months could basically kind of transition in, in that transition which was happening. What really um, kind of amazed me is how even though you have a, a body which um, is lifeless, which doesn't move anymore at that time, how I still kind of had the same kindness and the same relationship to that body which was lying there. And I almost kind of felt like she's still alive or she's still there, even though I knew the mind and the body had kind of separated at that, at that time. And I wasn't freaked out. I was able to be there. I also have some Q&A sessions always on Saturdays, on the last Saturday of the month, and I had a Q&A session with the Q&A group. I also had a meditation on Zoom with people where I was actually sitting in the room with my mom or with what was left of my mom there. And uh, it was just so peaceful and so normal and so nice in a way as well. And I, I wish that we could have that kind of relationship to death and dying as well. I don't know how it works here in, in Australia. Some countries, they have a really big taboo about all these things and they don't um, really allow people to be close and to experience this and to be able to also experience the beauty of this. One of the things, for example, um, in Switzerland is and in that nursing home is when the undertakers come and they take the body, they go with the coffin into the elevator through the normal way past the reception, out the, out the main gate. And when that happened with my dad for, uh, in another nursing home and his uh, aunt was there from Canada, she said, we would never do that in the US or in Canada. You go to the back door, you go down to the garage, you kind of like, you know, try to hide it away. And it was so beautiful to see that it is actually accepted because once we start to accept dying, then we also accept life we don't realize how closely these things are interwoven with each other. And if we shut one of those things out, we're actually shutting the other thing out as well. But as I said before, this is something which has to be done very gently and very kindly and in a way where people can find their own ways um, how to do this. Right, so two o'clock in the morning and I had already a message prepared to send out to the people. That's actually one of those pictures that I send out as well. And we also had a little saying that I would like to read out, which was on the kind of death announcement, so to speak. And that was about hope. The, uh, and it's from Václav Havel, which was uh, one of the presidents of uh, Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia even back at that time. The more unappropriate... Oh, that difficult word. <laughs> the more unpro 
well, the, the more promising, actually, the situation is in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Hope in this deep sense, uh, uh, hope in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy, that things are going well, or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work through something because it's good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. And that's what kind of represented the life of my mom as well. She had cancer twice in her lifetime, and sometimes, you know, things work pretty bleak, but she always showed hope. And also, you know, when you're with a dying person, in some sense, it is bleak as well. But you should still be able to not lose uh, one of those precious things, like um, this hope that Václav Havel is describing here. Okay, I don't know how we're going with time. I've been going for quite a while, isn't it? Okay. Um, you're, you're still okay? Is this too much or is it... Because what I would like to share is also a few... Um, few memories or a few um, um, what what happened next in the memorial service there for me um, maybe for you also to get some ideas because very often what we lack around death is we lack rituals and if there are beautiful rituals that we can do that can help us to deal with death and dying it can actually facilitate oh right there we go that's the other thing which happened first. I don't know if I get to the memorial service. That's the thing. So your mom dies. <laughs> you have to deal with all of that. And then, bang, next thing, you have to clear a whole room. Not an apartment this time, but still, a whole room of stuff. You don't get any time to think and reflect. So that was actually quite hard. Um, but, you know, you just get on with it <laughs> and you try to get help. For example, uh, you can see the clothing up in the right-hand corner up there. And my, my sister was, uh, was wonderful to help me with the clothes and all these things and also with some other things to, um, to sort through them and, uh, you know, to take some stuff and to pass on some stuff because you also want to be respectful about the things which remain. You don't just want to throw them away, but you want to make sure they can be used uh, in, a, in a helpful way. Um, by someone else. And that was actually also quite nice in the monastery uh, where I lived. They had a soup kitchen. And in that soup kitchen, um, they had people who couldn't afford uh, much or were in a difficult situation. And so I had quite a few things in bags that we could bring down to that soup kitchen and give to those people. You know, sometimes you have lots of, um, you know, toothpaste and beauty, whatever, those, those kind of thingies, which are still closed and which are still fine to actually pass on to someone uh, who could use them. But then, of course, the next step, uh, which is uh, also maybe not such an easy step, is um, the cremation. We, we decided to have a cremation, and I decided to be there at the cremation as well. But again, as I was trying to explain before, there is a difference between a person and what we got to know of that person and the body. So when I was there, and I also took a few pictures, it was early in the morning, you have to go there early in the morning, first thing, um, uh, to you know, see the coffin go into the incinerator. When I did 
share those pictures with the people. I was saying I was here today to take farewell of the body of my mom. Because I already had taken farewell of the body, uh, of, the, of, the, or of my mom. So my mom is not what the body is. As I was describing, you know, I was relating to that body, even though it was dead, to some degree, as if my mom was still there. But I was relating to something else, not to the vehicle, not to the house. It's like when someone has lived in a house, you go into the house and you still kind of feel their presence or you want to respect what is left in that house. But you know, it's not, it's not the person. It's not the person who lived in that house. So to kind of make that separation. And what came to me this morning, it's, it's a simile like in meditation. We usually settle on the body first of all. And then there comes a time where the body fades into the background and where we let go of the body. And there starts to become a, con a, a transition where we transit from the body as we know it to the mental world, to the mind. And if we're not so used to that and the body starts disappearing and we're very, we very attached to the body, then we start to freak out. <laughs> but if we realize that there is something else which is more subtle when the body starts to fade away, then we can actually connect to that. And that happens in meditation and that happens also in life. So because of that, I was able to um, be there um, for the cremation as well and tend to go and pick up or um, uh, her remains later down the track. Right, more cleaning, more um, uh, moving things. The monastery, again, was very, very helpful there. They gave me one of those little cart thingies there to, um, to t take things. And so I could pass on even some of the furnishings to that monastery, which was actually um, quite beautiful, and it was so close. But now one of the things which happened, which is the problem, so you can see now, um, oh, ah, it does, does go the wrong way around. Okay, I see what you mean. <laughs> it doesn't turn it around. Okay, anyway, we, we, can, we can switch them off. Um, there were some videos there, but it doesn't matter. So in the first one, it basically shows after seven days when I was able to clear the room and it was all empty. And that's usually not what happens. I was very um, fortunate, again, to have so much time to spend on this and to do it properly. So the room was completely empty. What happens very often is people, you know, just take whatever they feel they want to take and leave the rest, and then the people in the nursing home have the job to, you know, dispose of the things and clean the room. And the feedback I got, they said, we've never seen a shiny room as shiny as this one. Because also, you know, when I was working in there, there was sometimes dust behind the furnishings and so on. Then I would get the vacuum cleaner, say to the cleaners, can I have the vacuum cleaner and clean it up? <laughs> so it was actually really nice and shiny when I, when I gave them the room, and they were really impressed by that. But when I returned the key, that's the key I talked about, that was actually one of the really difficult um, times for me because I now had such an intimate time with my mom and I had a mission, I had a task to complete. And when I returned that key, that task finished. And even though I still had um, some money uh, on the account to go and have lunch in there, uh, uh, actually, one of the other um, inhabitants of the nursing home also put some money there so I could eat there. So I would still be there, but I wouldn't be able to do what I've been doing for such a long time. 
So that was actually quite a difficult um, period, but you know, I got through it. And then the second picture shows the room where I'm staying in the monastery with all the stuff <laughs> that I moved from A to B. Because of course, my sister, she could help me, but my brother, he was in the UK and he couldn't help. So I had to put some things aside so they could have a look as well. <laughs> so that's sometimes what happens. You let go of one thing, <laughs> but then you attach to something else or you let go of one kind of room. You take it out of one room, but you start to clutter up the other room. So it's really a process which is also very gradual there. Okay. And then one thing which I also did um, is the so-called Bodhi shop, not the body shop, <laughs> but the Bodhi shop. I've done that a few times now when I um, try to pass on things that are still useful. So my, my friends in Switzerland already know that. So when they get a message, the Bodhi shop is open again. <laughs> they know there is things that I would like to pass on. Um, and it's really nice for me to know that they actually have a purpose. So for example, this, this kind of stick thingy that you can see there, it's a rainmaker. Um, uh, and it's, it's this thing which really sounds like when, when it's raining. It's a cacti and it has little seats in it and the, the uh, spikes have been hammered inside. So when, when those seats fall down or those pebbles fall down, it really sounds like rain. And that one I was able to give to one of uh, my teacher friends. And I know now that she is using it with her kids in, uh, in her, um, her lessons, or it's just in her classroom, and it will be there for many, many kids. So that is also a kind of a nice memory for me, where I see that my mom kind of lives on. Okay. Yes, and then that would be the other one. But I'm um, realizing I have way too much material here. <laughs> so I think I better stop here. Um, I hope um, what I was able to share was um, helpful for you to connect to and to maybe also get some ideas um, how you could um, approach something like that. I'd be very happy to also take questions or comments to see um, how that was for you. And maybe on a second occasion, uh, I might be able to share as well what we did in the memorial service, but I'm just realizing it's, it's, it's too much um, for this time around. Okay, maybe just go to one of those. Slides there, this one. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, please. Uh, can we have the microphone? And I guess we also have questions online, but we usually go back and forth. Is that right? Yeah, cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, actually, it was kind of coincidental. My mum has just left. She came over to stay one night with me, and she left yesterday yes. <laughs> um, to stay with me. Well, I had a bit of surgery. But I... Yeah. Uh, I've got a question, but I think it could be a whole different talk yes. because I was wondering if you have very, if you have a very difficult relationship mm. with your mother mm. um, and especially in, you know, the meditations where you, you know, and I know all the, the, the dialogue and, but you know, for people, for those of us who have lots of conflict, I wonder is, is what advice, like mm. it's a big one, but I think it would mm. be a really, I'd mm. love to hear mm. you do a talk on that. Yes. I mean, as I was trying to indicate, a lot of the work happens beforehand. A lot of the work happens in your practice, happens with loving kindness, for example. So you develop kindness with the people where it's easy to develop kindness towards. It's like a fire you kindle within yourself. And then you reach out to more and more people where it is more and more difficult. And Ajahn Brahm often says it's like those sappy logs. <laughs> you can't make a fire with those sappy logs. So you have to get a fire going first. 
And then you can put those sappy logs on because there is enough heat, because there is enough warmth to um, be able to also get uh, use that as fuel. So what I would encourage people to do there is to really practice these things and to have kindness at a distance and to have kindness um, in little increments and really treasure those times you have with your loved ones or with other difficult people <laughs> where you actually manage to stay kind, where you manage to have a connection, where you manage to kindle that fire and then just to take it a step further and a step further and a step further. Um, yeah, but also, I don't know, not, not, not to be afraid because sometimes we are afraid that something will be triggered or that something will go wrong and we don't have enough trust to go in. We don't want to get hurt again. And we have to just know that hurt will happen again and again and again. And of course, with my mom, we had a couple of times as well where we just, it, it, it didn't quite gel, it didn't quite work out. But I always had the time to get out of the situation, to get into a safe space, to meditate in the monastery, to kind of balance out again, and then to go in with fresh energy, to go in with, with kindness. So you have to build up the kindness and go in. And when it drains, that's when you get out. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, please. Thank you, Online, Ajahn. is it? Yeah, there's one. There's mm -hmm. a couple of online questions okay. we won't we won't get to today. Right. But there's one that's very specific to your talk today. Um, yes. And there's a lot of lot of um, comments of appreciation. So oh, thank really? you, Ajahn, okay. for that. Good. I'm I'm happy that landed because I didn't. You know, this is a very different talk this time and very personal as well. So I didn't know how it's going to go down. I, I loved it as well. Okay. So it's this first question here is, dear Venerable, thank you for your talk. Many of us are trying to prepare for the inevitable loss of these important relationships. I'm expecting and deliberating on this emotional pain. What helped you the most? Well, I, I, I hope I could convey it with, with the talk. I mean, it's, it's really the, uh, the conditioning that I was fortunate to, to have and then also the surrounding conditions. And that's something you build so you have faith and you trust the Dhamma. You have faith and you trust goodness. And you build that up over time. And it is something which is there to support you. That's the best way I can put it. And of course, you know, at some stage, I just had to leave and go to Switzerland and not know if I really have a space to stay, if I really have enough food, if I will really be able to cope with what is expecting me. But I've learned over my life, not just, you know, in the monastery, even before when I was, when I was working with disabled people, um, that we often get wound up in our own views, that we often get wound up in language. And I didn't talk that much with my mom, <laughs> but I sat with her. I tuned into what was going on. I tried to give her a feeling that I'm there and I tried to give her a feeling that it is okay. And by reflecting and showing that this difficult situation through the training that I have received was okay for me, I guess allowed it for her 
to gradually, gradually get to a point where it was okay for her as well. And the last week was especially um, um, touching and, and, and nice where I saw that she switched to acceptance for some, some reason. There was lots of fear and lots of anxiety before, and she had that for her whole life. And uh, even the carers were kind of expecting, you know, ooh, ooh, <laughs> we have this kind of <laughs> trajectory and momentum, and we have the experience with other people, it might get even worse. But it actually switched, it changed. Um, yeah, I don't know, that's just my honest answer out of the moment. I hope that that supports you and I hope that helps you. But I mean, you won't know before you're there. And when you're there, um, just have as much support as you can have from before in terms of preparation, but also has, have as much, as, um, as much support as you can when you are there. And so many people have supported me, not just um, with food and lodging, but also emotionally in that time, which was, of course, very, very important. That you don't, that you realize you don't have to be, you know, super daughter or super son or super monk or whatever. You just have to be real. And if it's too much at times, then it's okay to um, just say, look, this is too much for me. I've stayed for too long and, and to pull back and to gather your energies again and to balance to be able to go in and uh, actually be helpful, that it is wholesome and helpful for yourself and for the person involved as well. Hope that helps. Uh, yes, please. Can we have the microphone? Because then uh, they can hear it. Thank you for sharing your experiences today. I've, um, just have a question with respect to letting go. I've, yes. um, 2010, my daughter died very unexpectedly and suddenly. Oh, wow, yes. And then in 2017, my partner died in a car accident again, suddenly, mm. unexpectedly. Mm. And I have a lot of trouble letting go. Letting go. Everything's still in storage. Emotionally, I'm still very connected. Mm. It's 13 years. Seven years. Yes. Where do I go? Yes, yes. When these things ha happen unexpectedly, and especially when they happen to people who are close to us, um, it is very, very difficult. But what we try to realize is what we are trying to hold on to are the nice memories, are the, the spiritual things really that connect us to those people. And uh, they kind of live they find a home in their belongings. And that's maybe why it might be difficult to let go of these things. So um, we should never force ourselves to let go because even if we are very um, kind of efficient or we kind of say like, I'm a Buddhist, I have to let go. And we go to the storage and we throw away all those things. We've thrown away the physical part but we haven't really let go. So we have to make sure that the letting go on an emotional level happens first and that we then let go of those things gradually step by step. So yeah, just do it one thing at a time if you can um, and slowly, slowly work your way through this. But also remember that what is really, what really remains 
in your life, and that's what I wanted to share from the memorial service, but I might also bring it now, is in now is, is the love and the time you had together with that person and the love and the time you invested into the relationship with that person. And that is something which lives on. That is something which lives on in your own heart and not in the furnishings or in the kind of things. Um, and that's something if we remember that, if we nour nourish that, if we bring that in our own life, then we actually do the best service to the people that have um, left us. And the same thing happens on their end. We have given those, we have sown those seeds of, of love and of care into their hearts. And in Buddhism, we believe that we don't just, you know, go out and that's it. <laughs> so they have their own life somewhere else and they take that with them as well. And it's good to remember that um, and to focus on those, those kind of things. And to also, one thing to remember is that the people we've left um, would like us to be happy. And sometimes we deny ourselves that happiness um, because we think we have to. And uh, it's, it's very important to also, you know, when we're happy, to share that happiness with the people. That's actually what we do in Buddhism. We share merits, we share the goodness, we share the goodness of the things we do, how we behave, but we can also share the goodness of the, the happy memories that arises in us. Or if something happy happens to us in life, we really let it into our hearts and we share it. We share this happiness with the being that has passed away. So we are not just happy for ourselves, we're actually also happy for them. And we know that they are happy, that we are happy. I don't know, does that make sense? <laughs> but you have to try. I know it's a long process. Great. Yes. But it doesn't make the... Right, right. And it doesn't make the, the, the other thing go away before we have really accepted it. And acceptance is really a gradual process. So you just go one step at a time. And then you go two steps backwards. And then you take three steps forwards again. All I can say is to encourage you to, to carry on walking in that direction. And there will come a day where you will be able to accept it. And when you accept it, then letting go happens. But you can't let go. <laughs> you can't because then you're pushing it away. And pushing things away is not letting go. It's, and it's another form of attach attachment. Well, all the best on your journey. I hope, I hope that helps. Okay, time is... Time is <laughs> it's time to finish off, isn't it? Yes, but uh, I guess there's already another talk in the pipeline <laughs> when I come back next time. <laughs> Or maybe also in another location. Okay, uh, let's uh, pay uh, homage to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. What I usually do is also I stay back. Uh, I don't know how much time I have now, but you're welcome to come for lunch. And if you wish to talk to me about something or ask about something afterwards, just like one-on-one -on -one or in a small group, I'm, I'm of course still available. Okay. <laughs>